This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. This is my first Dharma Talk of the year. And I, um, in reflecting on what I thought was most uh, up for me and what I was most interested in speaking about, I thought, I was just thinking about the turning of the new year, and we're already halfway through January, and I don't know about you, but oftentimes people tend to use the turning of the year to kind of assess, reflect on the past year, look forward to the new year. This time we have a whole new decade to... uh, uh, aspire about or to um, to step into in a way that uh, hopefully with some attention and connection you know to this we might be able to walk into this decade with some renewed aspirations for how we uh, for connecting to ourselves and what's most important so that's a big question though. <laughs> What is most relevant? What's most uh, important? Maybe not the most important, but what is really deeply important moving into 2020 for ourselves and, as I will talk about in this talk, uh, our, our true self, our true, true self, beyond the personality, the colors and shapes and sizes, and, uh, but, but much more real, Realistically, what is our true self? Maybe even practically, what is our true self? We also have to be careful, however, of setting intentions because oftentimes when we set intentions, we're setting ourselves up, right? Because we're in the realm of thought and abstraction and ideals. And ideals can be very dangerous, right? We find this up for ourselves when we set up our uh, ideals. Because what inevitably happens with ideals is what? <laughs> we fall short. We fail to, uh, you know, we, we sign up. The, I think gym memberships are like always higher in January. And then by maybe January 17th, <laughs> it's like, oh, I haven't gone to the gym. Oh, how terrible. And then we, you know, oh, it's so terrible. <laughs> Right. So ideals are very dangerous. Not that we don't have ideals, and ideals are very important. Um, however, to be very careful about how we are with our ideals, right? with our intentions, our best intentions. So um, maybe a few things just about the, the timing of right now, of this weekend. Uh, I don't know, many of you may not know, but this weekend is... Um, Tomorrow, actually, is our founder in Japan, Dogen Zenji's birthday. And then on Monday, we observe Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and we will be having a a special ceremony here. Um, We'll have our usual morning sit, which is, if you have not been here in the morning to sit, I highly recommend coming in the wee hours before it gets light, and like just finding a spot and sitting yourself down and uh, joining the community for a morning sit. And Tuesday morning is when we're going to have our ceremony. 
So we'll sit for two periods as we usually do. And then we'll uh, get up and have a MLK uh, birthday ceremony. About 15 minutes, no more than 15 minutes. So uh, it's a great way to start your day and your week. Well, not your week, my week. <laughs> um, but it's a great way to start the, the day. And um, I think of both Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as examples of two uh, aspirational bodhisattvas. So here's an ideal for you, the bodhisattva ideal. How many of you have, uh, have aspired on the bodhisattva path? That's a lot of people. A lot of people have aspired to become bodhisattvas. Right? What is a bodhisattva? Bodhisattva is a, an enlightening being. Right? What are some of the characteristics of an enlightening being? Service. Right, service to all beings. To all beings. Right. So, in early Buddhism, the idea there was an ideal of the arhat. Right? And that was to be uh, to live in service of one's own enlightenment. Well, I mean, it wasn't necessarily one's own enlightenment in, as opposed to others. I think it was just wanting to wake up, right? And starting with this body and mind, which is where we have to start, right? And the bodhisattva ideal developed in Mahayana Buddhism, although I think it was around before Mahayana. I mean, it, Mahayana Buddhism developed out with this idea of a bodhisattva as... Uh, someone who took on the vow that I am not going to leave this samsara world and leave others behind, that, that actually I want to enlighten, be enlightened with everyone, and I don't want to leave anyone behind. And so I'm even going to forego my own departure off this wheel of samsara until everyone comes with me. Right? And that's, that's the, in a nutshell, that's the bodhisattva ideal. Right? And as a Mahayana temple, I think we, we, uh, I'd like to think that what we do here is we grow and nourish and feed bodhisattvas. <laughs> That's what we're in the business of doing, right? Is producing bodhisattvas. Right. Do we, are you all in agreement? Is there any disagreement <laughs> about what, what the plan is? What are our, our uh, yeah, I guess if we were to, uh, do some grant writing. We would start with right? this is our, you know, this is our product <laughs> to grow bodhisattvas. Um, so, um, in terms of this bodhisattva ideal, one of the things I, I think is really important. Um, getting back to this, uh, the problematic nature of having an ideal, right? Is that ideals can get in the way of what's actually present, right? And so it's, um, it's often the case that we, you know, we're cons we want to know more about this bodhisattva ideal, uh, the bodhisattva path of developing what's called bodhicitta, right, of the mind of awakening. When we have an ideal, we, um, it's very easy to fall into thinking about, uh, uh, through a, thinking with our comparative mind, right? So we look at ourselves and we think, oh, I could be more forgiving, 
I could be more compassionate. I could be more generous. When we aspire, it almost like the aspiration, almost you, it's, it's really hard to separate from this comparative mind, right? Of like, well, I'm not as good as I could be, or I'm not where I want to be, right? And so on the one hand, it's like, yes, we can notice that we're not where we want to be, or we, uh, or we're, you know, we try to gauge where we are in our path of practice, how far along, you know, and there's, you know, some systems of, Bo of Buddhist thought, there's stages, the Bodhisattva stages, and so you can be like, well, which stage am I on, right? And, and that, that can be very helpful, uh, in a limited way, it's a, in a limited way, it's, I think it's helpful um, because when we have that, uh, when we approach it with a comparative mind, um, we get stuck in the realm of objects, right? In terms of objects like uh, mental objects, like judgments, right? I think in terms of um, how we take care of our Three poisons, the, our greed, right? Our greedy minds, our uh, aversive or hateful mind, or the deluded mind. How we take care of that as a bodhisattva, how do we do that? How do we take care of these things that as human beings we're kind of uh, endowed with greed, hate, and delusion, right? If we turn towards those as objects that we need to somehow manipulate, change, uh, we can fall into uh, this comparative mind. Now, when we come and sit zazen, what do we do with all these objects when we sit? We drop them away, Karen? We let them go? Stop struggling with them. We stop struggling? Well, we, first we notice how we struggle, maybe, right? <laughs> and then that might... <laughs> open up. So, so we do. We do come in, we sit down, and what, we end up hap what ends up happening before we can drop them away, right, before we let them go, we have to notice what is, what is present. So when we sit zazen, we have this opportunity with other people, which I think is incredibly supportive to sit with other people, right, to have this sense of, yes, we're, we're in this together, and we're undertaking this practice of deep looking without judging, right? So we're letting, we're trying to let go of things like judgment in, in a sense so that we can get a bigger picture, so that we can create some space between uh, these, these objects, of these mental objects or these um, aversive states and our pure awareness or presence. We just had a visiting teacher in town last weekend uh, the Reverend Kokyo Henkel, and who taught three days of a steady sashin, um, and went through some of these um, concepts of subject-object duality and how we get how we get caught in it. Right. So when we move away or we move from, uh, you know, when we we when we sit and closely pay attention to the arising and passing of our delusions, right, or our aversive states, or our lustful states, we could be anything, any object that comes into our consciousness, we see it, we acknowledge it, we don't try and manipulate it, and we don't try and uh, push it away or fix it in space, we just notice it, and with our breath, we could actually let it go with our breath, and it comes up, maybe it comes up right there in the next breath, right, and that just gives us something else to practice with, we let go of that. 
And over and over again, what we do when we sit zazen is we move away from this, uh, and Gil Franzdahl calls this, this kind of an aboutness, right? Being, having our orientation be about these mental objects, what's happen, coming and going, we move away from that as we're sitting and move towards a kind of um, a wholeness, right? Where, where there's not this separation between us and the thing. We participate in this, um, this allowing that's more like we become our experience. It's not like we're having the experience, we become our experience. And in this way, it's moving from thinking about into being. Just being. Just being presence. Just being our awareness. And so these objects come and go within this field, right? But they don't, um, we don't necessarily get hooked. Or the hooking that we do that creates this division between self and other, that starts to fall away. How many of you have had this experience? I think everybody has had this experience at some point. Whether it's in meditation or it's in some being in some flow state where um, you know, the immediacy of presence is with us. Right? And that is, becomes more dominant than our thinking mind that wants to grasp onto, onto objects. Right? And we, in, this, in this sense, we feel like we've dropped self. Right? We've dropped our self. This selfing. Right. So, it's funny because um, you know we have this this description. Suzuki Roshi. How many of you are familiar with the the story where he talks about? I think it's in. I'm not sure where it's written, but in the lecture, one of the lectures, he talks about his experience. He was talking about being at Tassajara, where if the, for those of you who know Central California coast and inland, there are Stellar's Jays. Stellar Stellar's Jays all over the place, and they're very noisy, and they create quite a ruckus, uh, and they're uh, aggressive. Like, if you're eating food, you know, they will take it out of their, out of your mouth if they can, you know, <laughs> try to take it out, and you know, swoop down, and right, I've heard people get, you know, cut on their lips, from the, the graspiness of the, the blue jay. Right. So in this one uh, Dharma talk that, that Suzuki Yoshi gave at Tassajara, I believe it, uh, and uh, remind me someone if, if you know, uh, if it, it appears in a... There's a YouTube video of it. Of the talk. Blue jay, just look up blue jay, I think, and you'll find it. But in this, uh, in this description of the blue jay, People complain all the time about the blue jays because they're noisy, they attack you, they attack you, they, you know, they kind of take over Tassajara, and it's hard to concentrate on your breath when they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, think about grackles, but like a hundred times worse. <laughs> um, but he says, uh, in terms of the, this, how we, how we are with these ex, so-called external objects, like sound. It's like the sound of the blue jay. Suzuki Goshi uh, talks about how when we are fully present and we don't fall into this aboutness about the blue jay, the blue jay is no longer separate. Like when we're in, this, in the moment, 
hearing the sounds, being present with what is when there's these blue jays around. He describes it as the blue jay comes right into your heart, right? And then you are the blue jay. Now, this isn't just like woo-woo stuff, right? This, you become the blue jay. In a sense, this endeavor, what we're doing here by dropping these, these objects and relaxing into the present moment with this awareness, that's this huge vastness of awareness, in that sense, we become our experience. Right? We become the blue jay. Now, getting back to this idea of the bodhisattva, um, the bodhisattva path, which is the one where when we embark upon it, the idea is that we want to live for the benefit of all beings. Just backing up a little bit, one of the grounds fundamentally to this bodhisattva ideal, one of the basic things when you take up this path is that we're actually not separate. So in this sense, being the blue jay as a bodhisattva means that you can't separate it from us and say, oh, there's this, bodhis- there's this blue jay outside of myself. The blue jay and its manifestation in my, you know, you can think about it scientifically in terms of like how sound is represented in your, in your neurology and how you create an object in your, you know, with your big brain, right? How we do that. In a sense, we become the blue jay itself, right? Through our interaction, through this 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 thing called sound or or uh, vision, as well. But if we ground this bodhisattva ideal in this concept, I think we sometimes uh, it's, it can be troubling the concept of emptiness. But this emptiness of this duality between self and other, this division that we have, which conventionally we say is true, right? If the blue jay eats, you know, bugs, it doesn't mean that we're eating bugs, right? There's a conventional way in which, yes, we are separate from the blue jay. But in this absolute way, we are not separate from whatever, we're not separate because there is no true self versus other, right? How does this non-separation function when we think of it versus when we allow it through the activity of practicing presence and awareness in this present moment, in sitting zazen? Something that we experience when we sit, and yet when we rise from sitting and start opening our mouths and talking about it, we end up making it into objects, which is why it's incredibly difficult to talk about and why Suzuki Roshi resorts to poetic language like, you become the blue jay. So it's very, when um, when we recognize that the bodhisattva path and the whole the project of growing bodhisattvas has to be deeply rooted in this non-separation between self and and other, um, it moves from uh, thinking of things as being, um, from like, for example, when Kokyo was here, he spoke about the, the turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. From the early Buddhist sutras, 
the first turning being that where, where self becomes, uh, where we don't become ob the objects of the world, this division between objects and self is still actually somewhat present in the first turning. However, this idea that we are, um, we are somehow, uh, these objects are empty of us, uh, individual personal self, of me and mine, right? When we look closely at our rising and passing of our experience, these so-called aggregates of experience that encompass everything that we can possibly experience, we find that there is no separate self in the first turning. Then, in the second turning with the Prajnaparamita, the emptiness teachings, it's not just that we are empty of inherent existence, that a, a thing, the, the, the self is empty of inherent existence. It doesn't exist from its own. That when you look deeply, you can't find a self, but actually objects too, that objects themselves are also empty of having an independent existence, that things are interconnected. Right? That's another way of talking about it. It's not quite as full, but that things are interconnected. Right? This is a second turning. Third turning being that of looking at uh, this awareness, the third turning being the teachings of mind-only Buddhism, Vyogachara. In the third turning, we have uh, the emergence of something called Buddha nature, that Buddha nature being this, um, not a, it's not a person, it's not like I have my Buddha nature and you have your Buddha nature, although sometimes we talk about it that way, but this idea of this ground of awareness that is ever present that all of us have, we, we have some access to, right? When we, we allow for the busyness of our minds that want to grasp onto things, when that is allowed to drop away, when we sit zazen, for example, when we uh, lower our self, selfing, I, me, mine, selfing, then we become, uh, in this sense, it's like becoming the blue jay, right? This awareness include, is all-inclusive, right? And we happen to be, you know, you can think of it as like we're like these receptors to this, this vast universe. And this is all of us are expressing. We're all met like uh, waves on this ocean, right? Of all that there is. But again, it's not necessarily... Uh, it's not personal. I wanted to read a section just on this, this idea of Buddha nature. This is from, uh, also from Suzuki Roshi. So he says, so on each moment, is ex ex uh, describing Zazen, so on each moment, just concentrate and really be yourself. At this moment, where is Buddha nature? Buddha nature is when you say, yes, that yes is Buddha nature itself. The Buddha nature which you think you already have within yourself is not Buddha nature. <laughs> when you become you yourself, or when you forget all about yourself and say yes, that is Buddha nature. This Buddha nature is not something that will appear in the future, but something that is already here. If you have only an idea about, here's that aboutness, if you have an idea about Buddha nature, it doesn't mean anything. It is a painted rice cake, not a real one. 
meaning you can't eat it. <laughs> it just looks like something. If you want to see an actual rice cake, you should see it when it is here. So the purpose of our practice is just to be yourself. When you become just yourself, you have real enlightenment. If you try to hold on to what you attained previously, that is not actual enlightenment. So it's kind of confusing, right? He's talking about this self. So what self is he talking about? What is this self that he's talking about? Is it the object self? The awareness of being aware. The awareness of being aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. The experience that we have. Not, and again, here I am using this word called the experience, as if it's a thing. I've made it into an object. So all, automatically, like, I'm kind of falling into the weeds. Right? But when we look inside, we turn this light of awareness inward, and we experience whatever it is that we're experiencing fully. And it could be, you know, uh, we can attach ideas or thoughts, to, uh, uh, descriptions to it, for example, we can say it's an unpleasant experience, or it's a pleasant experience, or it's a neutral experience. But beyond all of those, those are all extra. They're extra to the experience itself. Right? When we fully step into experiencing itself, as we do when we sit zazen, dropping our conceptions, it becomes impossible to talk about it, except maybe through, uh, through poetry, through koans, right? through relationship, through relating to one another. But this saying yes, coming back to this, what does it mean to say this? When Suzuki Roshi talks about saying yes, what does that what does that look like? What does that mean? Acceptance. That it's a form form of acceptance to say yes. Yeah. Can you read that one? I don't remember what the yes was. Ah, sorry. Sure, no problem. I can say this. Uh, read this again. So he says, Buddha nature is when you say yes, that, na- that yes is Buddha nature itself. Then he says, and this is where he clarifies this, the Buddha nature which you think you already have within yourself is not Buddha nature. When you become you yourself, or when you forget all about yourself and say yes, that is Buddha nature. So, uh, yes, Tim. Just to answer you to your Last question, like the word allowing comes back, and so allowing ourselves to be however we are, or the reaction we're having to be however it is, mm. allowing the situation to be how it is, or mm. other people. Mm-hmm. As, a, as, a, as, a, as a starting, as a ground, right? Yeah. yeah. So acceptance, allowing, um, being. Well, you said something about bodhisattvas, and I've heard it said that. Uh, Bodhisattva lives and is lived for the benefit of all beings. I vow to live and be lived for. Yeah. So, like, like there's, like, this body is a vehicle. For, yeah. For this. We say this at our full moon ceremony, right? <clears throat> I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. And the last thing I think we say in the full moon ceremony, there's a line. It says, um, uh, to expound the Dharma, which, which, what is Dharma? It means the truth of reality, right, basically. The Dharma is just the truth of, re- of our existence, the truth of reality. 
to expound the Dharma with this body and mind, right? That's the, that's the vow, right? That to expound the Dharma with this body and mind is foremost. Nick, were you? I was just thinking that um, instead of acceptance, to turn that around to not denying. Um, okay, so this allowing, acceptance, allowing, not de- non-denial. Because acceptance Non-turning sounds, away, not turning away. Yeah, it's, acceptance kind of connotates that there's some, some, someone accepting. Mm-hmm. And I think what is not denied is the, the self and object are one. Mm-hmm. That they're not, not self and object, self and other, self and object are not separate. Not separate. Not separate. Yeah. Yeah. Eric? By showing up. Saying yes. <laughs> yeah, showing up. Which we kind of do whether we want to or not sometimes, you can say, right? There's a way in which, uh, you know the idea of yoga, right? Is the, the, the term yoga is union, right? It's like integration. It's wholeness, right? So this showing up, like when we feel like we're not showing up, you know how the, it feels when you feel like you're not wholehearted? Where there's some piece of you that's just not on board. <laughs> and then there's an internal struggle, right? And liberation, oftentimes, when we think of being liberated, it doesn't look like this internal struggle, does it? <laughs> like, in some ways, liberation means the struggle has been resolved, that there is this integration, that it feels like we can step off the 100-foot pole with this, like, resounding yes, Yes, I will. And that's uh, just to say, we have uh, currently, when I said we were growing, you know, we're growing bodhisattvas, we, we are, uh, currently we have, I think, maybe, see, there's maybe eight people currently sewing a rakasu uh, or a, an okesa, right? That's the little bib thing that has, uh, that what is given to uh, a lay ordinee when they take on the bodhisattva vows. So we currently have about eight or nine of us sewing so that in preparation for the ceremony of receiving vows, which is, I think, one uh, one way to be on the bodhisattva path. Not the only way to be on the bodhisattva path, but it's a very clear way that traditionally we do it here at Soto Zen Zen and at the Austin Zen Centers. We have these the ceremony where people publicly take on, you know, I want to live for the benefit of all beings. I want to look at my own delusions. I want to not fall into thinking of self and other. I know I will. I know I will fall down. And yet, I vow, yes, I will. I want to do this. I want to take this up as part of my, um, my aspiration, my ideal, my wish as a vow. Right? And there's something very powerful of vowing. We do it every day here. We're constantly vowing. Taking refuge and then vowing. <laughs> right. You what is saying yes or something to that effect. Yes. And, and my experience has been that saying yes is, is seeing that awareness has already said yes to what, because it is present, whatever that is. And so that might look like, it might not be comfortable, sounds like, what you're saying, right? Sure. 
but it's still it's in just in having an experience you've already said yes because it's already awareness is already manifesting awareness is already aware yeah if you if you weren't aware then you haven't saying yes is being aware that x object experience has already become known has already become known in a sense that's maybe not a intellectual knowing. Precisely. It's experiential. Right? Sorry? It's experiential. It's an experiential knowing. Yes. It may not be conscious knowing, and it may not be something yes. that can be put into language. Absolutely. Right. Concept. It may not be conceptual knowing, but there's a experiential. You might check in after the fact. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and then we might create a story about it. <laughs> right away. <laughs> <laughs> and then we might believe the story and forget the experience, which, you know, that's kind of our plight. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then that's your opportunity to again say, oh, what's knowing this? Right. Next moment, right? The next moment refreshes, and here we are again with this opportunity to step in and become the Blue Jay, right? Or become the experience. Which, as what I hear what you're saying is, even that is extra. Mm -hmm. To step in and be the experience is already extra, right? It's already happening, and, and this feeling that we have of union or integration or not uh, is kind of immaterial. It's usually after the fact that you've noticed that, yeah. and that's the extra. After the fact, yes. Um, I had read this thing that uh, Sylvia Borstein, who's a Theravada practitioner, Vipassana practitioner, um, she said something that about this difference, distinction between like the bodhisattva ideal versus the arhat ideal, as um, that it's easier, self-liberation, the liberation of the arhat, is much harder, in a sense, <laughs> than the bodhisattva ideal of being enlightened, liberation for all, all coming up at once. And it's interesting to think about that. If, if the true nature of reality is that there is no separation, that the uh, categories of self and object, self and other, that you and me, uh, me and Donald Trump, me and you, all of it, if those are... In, in a sense, those are, in a very deep sense, those categories of this division are imaginary, then liberation, all of us together, has to be easier. Right? Otherwise, you're struggling. Otherwise, it's like you have to carve yourself away. You have to cut yourself off of the flow of all, all of it happening, the entire world manifesting at once which I thought was kind of interesting to think of it in that way. So this, when I talk about this, this reality, right, this dharma reality, um, whether it's in the phraseology of Buddha nature or um, non-independent inherent existence, that this reality is based on this, the bodhisattva ideal of waking up for the benefit of all beings and inclusive with all beings, um, to live and be lived for this benefit, that it has to be because it has to be grounded in uh, an awareness that this dualistic split is not true, that it is illusory, that we are separate. Interestingly, I've heard someone, uh, Greg Snyder up in um, 
Brooklyn Zen Center. He started here as a student and was ordained as a priest here at Austin Zen Center. Went off and founded Brooklyn Zen Center, co-founded Brooklyn Zen Center. Um, he was, uh, I heard him at one point talk about the, these turnings of the wheel of the Dharma that I mentioned, the first turning, second turning, first turning of, of early Buddhism, second turning of the Prajnaparamita and Nagarjuna and the emptiness teachings, third turning being the Yogacara teachings. When Kokyo was here, he said something like, there, are no, there's no, there can be no other turning of the wheel. <laughs> Which, when he said it, I was like, wow. Like, he's kind of thinking about it as, this kind of exhausts all the different possibilities. Right? But I'd heard uh, Greg Snyder say something, he was referring to the, uh, in the context of our climate emergency, that the, this idea of a fourth turning of the wheel of the Dharma being that of deep ecology, of looking at uh, the non-separation. We are not separate from this world, right? And so this idea of um, this new way of thinking of how, what would it look like if people in the world viewed the world as their body, as their body and mind, so everything that exists, that comes up in experience in this world, physical and mental, conceptual and otherwise, right, is no different from this body, that there's no separation between what we call the conventional me and everyone and everything. There's that sounds, a. That sounds totally third turning, you know. You think that sounds third turning? Totally ter- third turning, yeah. Interesting. See, I think of it as going back into uh, so third turning being very um, awareness, mind, mind only, concept only, and not being able to go beyond that. Whereas this is kind of coming back into tables and chairs and things that appear separate. I see where it's coming from. Now. Interestingly, there's a, I just, uh, this morning, yesterday, I, I uh, found a book review. There's a new book out. I don't think it's out quite yet. I think it comes out in a week. Called The Self-Delusion. It's not a Buddhist book. It's not written by, actually, I don't know if the author is a Buddhist um, or not. I'm actually not sure if he is. His name is Tom Oliver, and he's an ecologist at the University of Reading. If he's not a Buddhist, he will be. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to read, because this is, this is um, you know, I, I thought, when I thought this, I, it reminded me of this, this thing that Kokyo had said about the third turning, and then Greg talking, talk, referring to this ecological, the eco-sattva movement in Buddhism being the fourth turning. So uh, in this book called The Self-Delusion, uh, and the tagline, the, the subheading is, how you are connected to everyone else and why that matters. <laughs> this sounds very Buddhist, right? So this book makes the bold claim that our faith in the primacy and indivisibility of the individual is in fact false. <laughs> 2,500 years ago, this was being discussed. <laughs> On a physical, psychological, and cultural level, we are all much more intertwined than we, th- we know. We cannot use our bodies to, in, to define our independent existence because most of our 37.2 trillion cells 
have such a short lifespan that we are essentially made anew every few weeks. The molecules that have made up our, make up our bodies have already been component parts of countless other organisms from ancient plants to dinosaurs. We are more than half non-human in the sense of our cells. So the total number of cells in this thing called Mako. Skin bag. The skin bag. Yeah. <laughs> this, this skin bag, the cells that make up the skin bag, more than half of the cells are bacteria or protozoa and genes, some of which can influence our moods and even manipulate our behavior. So this I find absolutely fascinating, this idea of toxoplasma. <laughs> Where I mean, I've read about it in this in this uh, Tom Stamitz's book, Mycelium Running. I think he talks about this. Uh, this I, I know I've spoken about it here before. This um, fungus that, when interacting with a particular kind of ant, in this is a tro tropical region, that this fungus will grow, and when an ant eats a leaf that has the fungus on it, it the fungus takes over its the ant's whole physiology and actions. The ant basically stops what it's doing and climbs up to the highest point on the tree or wherever it gets to, bites down on whatever leaf is there, attaches itself there, and dies. And then a, a mold spore sprouts out of the ant's body. <laughs> Fascinating. And so, and, and uh, there's one of the things that I read uh, when looking at this book was this, um, this idea, reading this review about this book, I should say, this, this idea of um, or this research that with certain kinds of fungus or bacteria in humans, if present, leads to greater incidence of traffic accidents. So again, this uh, being more than half, half non-human, right? This influencing our moods and even manipulating our behavior. So undermining this sense of identity that we, it's so self-evident, right? I am me. It's so perfectly clear. It's clear and distinct idea, right? And it's only when we start to unpack it, and it's only when we start to drop that uh, aboutness, the objects, mental objects, and fall into allow, allow or um, you know, accept what, what is actually happening in this moment, not in a conceptual or theoretical way, but purely in an experiential wholeness, to participate in this ex full awareness of the moment. And then it further says, we cannot define ourselves by our minds, our thoughts, and our actions, because these mainly originate from other people. The result of memes passing between us, existing before, after, and beyond our own lifespans. He says, but that does not mean that we should all simply reject the evolutionary illusion of individualism that has allowed us to succeed as a species. Instead, Tom Oliver makes the compelling argument that we have a better chance of facing some of the big global challenges ahead, such as loneliness, social inequality, environmental damage, if only we start to understand and accept the complex connections between us and see beyond our individualistic mindsets to view our place in the world 
as it really is. Right. So when I read that, I thought I have to share that. <laughs> I'm going to get this book. And what's it called again? The book is called The Self-Delusion. Yes, The Self-Delusion. Where basically this just the idea that this body that we think of as being separate and contained is actually an open system. And it is made up of non-me parts, right? which is a way of talking about emptiness. In terms of when you hear emptiness, the idea of emptiness in Buddhism, it doesn't mean nihilism. It means that the things that we, this uh, illusion that we have, that we have a separate self, that we are a separate self, or that this cup is an inherently existent thing, right? That's not dependent on anything other than itself. And yet, it is completely dependent. It is completely interdependent on non-cup items in order to exist as a cup. It relies on everything else in the universe. And in terms of this ecology, I just drank this water that was separate from me. It is me, right? I can't, like, take it out, or I guess I could, but... (laughs) Very quickly, it is me, right? And expanding that into the entire universe, when we think, uh, even just on a physical level, if we were to take a, you know, a one micron slice from our body, what would we find in it? Besides all this, these genes or these things that are expressed in mitochondria that didn't come from these other organisms, beyond that, what would we find? We would find plastic. We would find plastic, we would find heavy metals, metals that had been under the Earth's crust, right? We would find chemicals, pesticides. Prozac. 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 That's not me. Yes. Even though I've never had it, I've never taken Prozac, you would find Prozac, right? From your water. From the water. From the water. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I feel so much better. So and then again the self delusion that I love that I love this tagline this how we are connected uh, how this interconnection unfolds and and furthermore how it's not just an intellectual idea that we're interconnected actually this matters deeply as we go forward into this new decade right um, one last thing I'm really running out of time. Um, Maybe I'll save that for another time. I'll save that for another lecture. So, um, by way of ending, I just uh, want to uh, encourage everyone to not get caught in uh, in the ideals that are, become yardsticks, right? That we measure ourselves against. When we notice that happening, again, when we rely on our deep knowing of, ex- of our experience, the deep knowing that comes from just being, as opposed to thinking about being, but deep being, right? We can see in ourselves, we can feel when there's a knot, when there's a tightness, when something feels off, right? And instead of trying to uh, think about that and what it means, to actually turn towards and attend with our full being, with our curiosity, with our kindness, with a feeling of, you know, what is this? What is this telling me? How do I, how do I learn? 
from this experience of being a, being a body, when we uh, rely on our direct pers- uh, experience as opposed to our thinking about something, I don't want to say magical, but there's something about trusting in that experience to guide us as opposed to our thinking about Right? And I don't mean like, oh, if it feels good, do it, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not what I mean, right? But in terms of returning to our wholeness, right? Being who we, what we, who and what we really are, which is the entire universe. How do we take care of that? How do we take care of this within this? So, may all beings find true happiness and freedom from suffering with no exclusions. May all beings wake up because all beings are this being. And we say these vows at the end of uh, every Dharma talk. So let's do these vows together. Thank you very much.